Amen. Awesome. Welcome. Uh, my name is uh, Pastor Joshua. It's great to have everybody here. And uh, as that video so rightly puts, we have been doing a series on lost causes. And today we're looking at uh, Charles Spurgeon. And uh, one of my, again, one of my favorites. And uh, we're going to be in John chapter 3. So you can grab one of those hardback Bibles right there. Amen. Yeah. But just don't hit people with it. That's not allowed. You do that, you get kicked out of church. Outside Next year, the vision is to have some iPads in there, but we're working on the budget with that one. Give everybody an iPad, and then I bet you we'll really grow the church, man. We're going to grow and boom. It's going to be phenomenal. But uh, <laughs> I better pray before I get on a roll. Uh, let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this great morning and um, just all that you're doing in our church. It's just uh, amazing. And uh, I pray that you would continue to work in us. And, Lord, we know that there's no such thing as a standstill faith. Either we're moving backwards or we're moving forward in our faith. And so we just ask that today would be um, a message and a time in your word that moves us forward and closer to you. Lord, light the affection of our heart. Um, Enlighten our mind. Um, Show us wisdom that is gospel-oriented, rooted in Jesus And help me not to get in the way of what you're communicating to all of us, myself included. So I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this series, we've been looking at lost causes. This series is based on a very simple idea from Jesus, which is which he said in uh, and is quoted in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's the basic concept of this series. And there's a couple of applications for all of us out of this series. Number one, if we are believers in Jesus Christ in this world and with our fle- and in our flesh and with our sin, it is because of the grace of God. We all are lost causes that have been found by Jesus if indeed we believe in Jesus. So it's very important as believers that we never get away from that because if we get a tick too far away from the idea that we're saved by grace alone, then we become prideful in our spirituality. We begin to lean into legalism. We begin to become mean-spirited, bitter-faced Christians if we forget that we are saved by grace. This series has as an underlying, not assumption, but fact that nobody deserves the grace of God more than somebody else. Amen? Nobody in here is like, oh, yeah, no, he should have given me grace, but that guy down the street jacked. You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't work. The second thing is, is to remember that with this series, that God can save anybody. Nothing is too hard for God. Nobody is outside of the uh, potential of being saved by God. So we all think of people after we come to Christ who are lost causes in our life. We all know somebody's a lost cause. Some of you are married to one today, right? And you're like, there is nothing that can rescript that guy, right? And we celebrate the God of lost causes to remember that our God can do the impossible. If God can change me, he can change you. If he can change you, he can change her down the street. And we can pray believing for miracles in people's lives. And so that's a great thing with this series. Now, today is Charles Spurgeon. We've been looking at uh, some people. We looked at the Apostle Paul, clearly a lost cause. 
I mean, he beat up Christians, hated Jesus, hated the church, then became a Christian. We looked at, uh, we looked at Augustine or Augustine. He was clearly a lost cause. I mean, if we would have met Augustine before he met Jesus, we would have said, no way that guy is ever becoming a Christian. Never, ever, ever, ever he's going to become. And he did. And then last week we looked at Martin Luther, who at one point in time just said to God flat out, I hate you, God. And so if we would have met Martin Luther in that monastery as a monk, we would have said, there's no way this guy's becoming a Christian. Today, Charles Spurgeon, he's a different story. And his story is this. His story is not that he was far away from God or from the church or from the true Christian gospel or message. In fact, his story and the reason why he was a lost cause is because he was overly exposed to the gospel and to Christianity. This was a man whose grandfather was a pastor, whose mom and dad loved Jesus, who was in a great church. He was surrounded by the message to such, a, to such an extent to where the Christian gospel seemed normal for him. He had a heritage and a legacy of spirituality in his family, and because he was so exposed to it, it became so normal to him that he could not believe because he was so close. Sometimes the most dangerous people are people who were born and bred in the church, true or false. We can get around something so great that we can forget it's great. We can take things for granted spiritually. We could take the gospel for granted. You know, it's kind of like if you were born walking upside down on a ceiling your whole life and everybody else is walking on the floor and they say, you shouldn't be walking on the ceiling, you should be walking on the floor. You go, you're crazy, you're cracked. Of course you're supposed to walk on the ceiling and not on the floor. Charles Spurgeon was so exposed to the Christian gospel that he couldn't believe. And you know what? As believers and some of you, maybe as unbelievers, you grew up in the church. You were exposed. It was a normal thing, uh, this idea of the Christian gospel. That as believers, sometimes we can become nominal or lukewarm. Because we, because it becomes so normal. We go to church every week. We, we, hear, we hear great sermons every week. Hey, man, I mean, it's so great that you're just like, dude, and it becomes normal. This is why Jesus taught to the church in Laodicea, and he said, you're so lukewarm. You're, you're such cold, timid souls, my interpretation of when he says you're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold. I could spit you out because you, it's just normal. And how can Jesus ever become normal? It reminds me of Israel and the Israelites out in the wilderness. And they were so familiar with God and with his move that they began to complain. In fact, uh, up on the screen, let me put it up there while you're holding your place in John 3. But in Numbers chapter 21, starting in verse 4. It talks about people who were so close to God and his power and his move and what he was doing and his message and his mission that they ultimately were unbelievers and they would ultimately die in the wilderness. But here it is in Numbers chapter 21 verse 4. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out 
up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, for there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Now, according to my knowledge and my relationship with God, I don't think he does this anymore, but be careful. Amen? <laughs> like, next time you complain against me and God, okay. Anyways, that's a joke. Don't send me an email. Verse 7. <laughs> and the people came to Moses. Oh, now they like Moses. <laughs> And they said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it out on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, a good litmus test that you've maybe been too inoculated, too exposed to the gospel, and it's becoming too common, is when you get so familiar with God that you can actually complain about non-essential things like the quality of food. Like something crazy. You, you know you're getting way too familiar with God when you forget that you were actually in slavery in Egypt. He took you out through miracles and Red Sea and everything else. He's brought you out, and then you start going, you know, it's a wilderness. Why would you bring me out here? And you have a complaining spirit. You're getting too close. Jesus talked to somebody who was really close to the move of God, Nicodemus, and he brought up this very story. In your Bibles, John chapter 3, I want to focus on verses 14 and 16. Let me read real quick verse 3, John 3 and verse 3. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, he's a religious leader, he has the Bible, he's heard the prophets, he knows what they say about the Messiah, but he's so close to God, to the move of God, to the gospel, that he can't believe. In verse 3, Jesus answered him and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, it's not overexposure or information, it's transformation. Of the heart that makes us believers. He goes on to say, skip down now in your Bibles to verse 14. Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, the threat for Nicodemus, the threat for the Israelites in the wilderness, the threat of Charles Spurgeon, the story I'm going to tell you here in a minute, is that they're so close to it, so familiar with God and the Christian message that they miss it. They're missing it totally. And what needs to happen is, is that they and we need to step back and look up in order that we won't be lukewarm. And if we're unbelievers who grew up in the church and we need to become believers, by stepping back again and looking at the message and the mission of God, we'll be brought into passion for God, and if we become cold, nominal believers, if we step back from the message and look again at Jesus and purpose afresh in our heart to believe in him again, then we'll be ignited with passion again and affection and love for him. You've got to, but we got to step back. That, that, that would work on TV, wouldn't it, Eric? Right? You know what I'm saying? you got to step back. 
and look up. We'll get Sherry some eyelashes and some big hair. You know what I mean? And then I'll make y'all talk to each other, like, turn to somebody and say, I'm going to step back to that. You know what I mean? <laughs> but you see, that's what we got to do. We got to step back and look up. Uh, how many of y'all love to go to art museums? Not me. But I've gone because I have four girls, and they like art. And so we've gone to these art museums. And, you know, you look at these great, picture, these great works of art, and some of them, to get the best perspective, you've got to just step away from it for a minute, right? Because if you keep your nose right up on it, all you can see is just little dots of paint and stuff. But if you just kind of step back, you can see the masterpiece. That's what I want to do today. I want you to step back. No matter how well you know the gospel, no matter how many years you've been in the church, no matter how many times you've been baptized, you've got to step back. And we're going to use Charles Spurgeon and his story to give us some principles on how to step back and to look up at Jesus again, again in a fresh way. Who is Charles Spurgeon? Let me go to my timeline. I love my timeline. Y'all love my timeline? I tell you, you're not going to know what to do when this series is over. You won't come back after this. We won't have the timeline anymore. Okay. First, we looked at the Apostle Paul. We put him on the timeline at A.D. 67. Then after that, we looked at Augustine, or Augustine, and he died in A.D. 430. All right. Last week, we looked at Martin Luther, lost cause. A.D. 1646 is when he went on to be with the Lord. And now... Today, we look at Charles Spurgeon. He's in England, all right, British. Charles Spurgeon, and he dies in 1892. So, he is a contemporary to D.L. Moody. Have you all ever heard of D.L. Moody? That Moody, his, his hero was Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is considered today maybe one of the greatest preachers to ever preach in the English spoken language. That's because the world has not heard me yet. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. That was a joke. That was, wow. I'm going to get struck down. I am a lost cause. Okay. Now, Charles Spurgeon. Amen. Somebody said amen. Don't start clapping. There is manners. Sheesh. All right. Anyways, so Charles Spurgeon, here's his story. I told you he grew up grandfather pastor, great theology, great reformed Puritan, uh, great uh, uh, Augustinian theology, Lutheran theology, great Pauline New Testament theology by grace, heard the best stuff, his parents, loving, loving, wonderful parents, I mean, wonderful, sang songs to him, took him to VBS every single year, he went to Sunday school, flannel board with the Jesus walking, you know what I mean, I mean, he knew all the songs, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I mean, he was loved, nurtured, and parents, let me just tell you, your child needs more than your influence to become a Christian. They need the Holy Spirit's influence. We have to get away from preserving 
This illusion that if my child has the perfect neighborhood and the perfect house and the perfect Christian school and the perfect little garden, that if they have the perfect love and the perfect Bible teachers and pastors like Pastor Joshua, if they have this perfect world, then they'll suddenly, automatically, they'll become Christians as if it's like making a toaster in a factory. And if it goes down that one same assembly line, it'll be a good toaster at the end. That's not how it works. You have to pray. Your child is a sinner. Your child has an emergency beyond your help or any Christian school's help. Some of the most prolific, profane writers of our time come from perfect environments, perfect suburban environments. Hugh Hefner came from an evangelical church just like this. Did you know that? So you have to understand that they need more. Charles Spurgeon needed more than a great family and a great school and a great church and a great theology. He had to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. He himself knew this. In fact, what he said was, he's like, it wasn't that I didn't like the gospel. I just, for some reason, I was rebelling wholeheartedly against God. I didn't want to rebel against God. I I wanted to like God. I I loved my grandpa's preaching. I loved my parents. I, I didn't even dislike the gospel message. And I understood it with my brain. I understood what Christianity was with my brain. I simply could not believe. And so he had to step back. He had to step back. And the way he stepped back is he began to go around all these churches. Let me give you a quote of his own lostness. This is what made him a lost cause. He said this about his background. He said, had I never read my Bible? Yes, and read it earnestly. Had I never been taught by Christian people? Yes, I had, by mother and father and others. Had I not heard the gospel? Yes, I think I had. And yet somehow it was like a new revelation to me that I was to believe and live. I confess to have been tutored in piety, put into my cradle by prayerful hands, and lulled to sleep by songs concerning Jesus. But after having heard the gospel continually, with line upon line, precept upon precept, here much and there much, yet when the word of the Lord came to me with power, it was as new as if I had lived among the unvisited tribes of Central Africa and had never heard the tidings of the cleansing fountain filled with blood drawn from the Savior's veins. He he simply couldn't believe. So he steps back, and here's how he steps back. He starts going to all these different churches. It's like, Grandpa, I love your preaching. Dad, I love your church, but I've got to step back. I've got to go to all these other churches. I've got, got to hear some different sermons. I've got, to, I've got to find a way to really believe with heart and soul. I want to believe in the gospel, but I simply can't. So he goes to Reformed churches and Anglican churches and Baptist churches, and he visits a new church every single Sunday. And then one Sunday, he wakes up, and there's a massive snowstorm, the biggest snowstorm that England's seen in years. And he walks out. Actually, I don't know if that's a fact, but it was a really big (laughs) snowstorm. See, I'm getting in preacher mode, and then I start exaggerating truths. But it's a really bad snowstorm, all right? And we in central Illinois, apparently we know what snowstorms are. I haven't seen it yet, but we know, right? 
So he's planning on going to one church, but he can't make it because the snowstorm's so bad. So he finds, as he's walking through the snowstorm, he finds a, a primitive Methodist chapel. He decides he's going to go hear the sermon in this Methodist chapel. And here is what happens. It's in his words. He's such a great communicator that I'm just going to quote his words on it. This is from his autobiography. He said about his conversion, the day of his conversion, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm. One Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship, and when I could, when I could go no further, I turned down a street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. And in that chapel, there may have been a dozen, 13 people, 15 people, I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. Amen. <laughs> right? We are primitive Methodists. I love that. And, but that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, so I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. <laughs> if you all ever say that about me, you can't come back. All right. <laughs> <laughs> He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. And the text was, look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And he did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope in that text. The preacher began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger, it's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand years to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus says, look unto me. Some on ye say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. And when he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me in the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. And just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Imagine if I said that to you. All right? I'm preaching. I'm like, You look miserable today. Right? Well... I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made to me from the pulpit on a personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment you will be saved. 
Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. And I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up and the people only looked and were healed, so it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. Are you all seeing this? Doesn't that sound like Augustine? Doesn't that sound like Luther? Doesn't that sound like Paul's conversion in Acts 9 when it says that the scales left his eyes and he could see, right? cloud was gone and the darkness had rolled away and that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him oh that somebody had told me this before trust Christ and you shall be saved yet it was no doubt all wisely ordered and now I can say ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Boom. He calls up his dad. He says, Dad, I'm a believer. Calls up his grandpa. I can't remember if his grandpa was really alive, but work with me. He says, Pops, I'm in. He goes to his church and says, I want to become a member. The pastor's like, well, we'll see about that. He's like, I don't care. I want to become a member. Starts teaching Sunday school. He's 15 years old and his life has just begun. From this moment on, his whole world would change. And by the way, the English-speaking world would change as a result of him. Some interesting facts about about, uh, Charles Spurgeon. Number one, he became a Baptist, which really frustrated his Jesus-loving mom. She She said, quote, I prayed for your conversion, but never thought you'd become a Baptist. His response, mother, that only proves that when you prayed, God did above and beyond all you could ever ask for or imagine. (laughs) He became one of the top ten most prolific authors in the English language. In fact, 300 million copies of his books and sermons have been sold. He became a household name in both England and America by the time he was 25 years old. He was one of the first preachers to, on, in a deliberate way, in a consistent way, use humor in his sermons. Keep in mind, in the 19th century, pastors were not supposed to be funny. That was considered ungodly, in fact, even vain. And so his critics would come out in the papers and say, you know, you know Charles Spurgeon uses all this humor, makes everybody laugh all the time. And his response to his critics was like, if you only knew how much I held back, you'd be pretty impressed. <laughs> he was not a perfect man. It's very important. Paul wasn't, Augustine wasn't, Luther wasn't, and Spurgeon wasn't. In fact, he had a problem smoking cigars. And they said, how can you smoke cigars? How can you do that as a pastor? And he goes, well, I believe in moderation. And they said, well, what do you consider beyond moderate cigar smoking? And he said, two cigars at one time. <laughs> he planted 48 churches in London alone. 
He was the first megachurch pastor with 5,000 people in his church. That's before microphones, before all the equipment that we use to kind of be able to draw a big crowd. 5,000 people. And when they rebuilt his, his, his church, they met in the music hall, which could seat 10,000 people. And he filled it up, 10,000 people. Imagine that. He was never formally ordained, never went to Bible college, never went to seminary. Now, in fact, he became a pastor of his first church at 19 years old. He refused to be ordained in the church, refused to be called reverend. In fact, anytime somebody would call him reverend, he would say, don't ever call me reverend. There's only one who is to be revered, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Dwight L. Moody loved him. He was his hero, was Charles Spurgeon. And the only thing Dwight didn't like about him was the fact he smoked cigars. Of course, Dwight L. Moody, he was kind of overweight most of his life. And so he said to Charles Spurgeon, you should stop smoking cigars. And Charles said to him, I tell you what, Dwight, you lose some weight, I'll stop smoking cigars. How about that? (laughs) He said, but what can we learn for our own life? About this lost cause. He was lost cause because he was so close in the church. What can we learn? What principles can we take away so we can step back and look again? Here's some principles from Charles. The first principle, very important, is the garage principle. Billy Graham was the one who said, if you're born in a garage and raised in a garage, that doesn't make you a car. If you're born in a Christian home, And you're raised in a Christian environment that does not make you a Christian. Just like a human being's nature would need to be changed to become a car, it is no less dramatic or miraculous for us to move from a human being in sin to a human being in Christ. It takes that kind of nature-changing miracle being born again. And it must happen personally. God must communicate to our hearts individually, directly, the gospel. Awaken us so that we can see and appreciate Christ. We can look up the garage principle. The second principle that helps us to step back and look and appreciate the gospel in a new way is the serpent principle. The serpent principle. In that text in Numbers that Jesus uses, it says that Moses stuck a serpent on a stick and raised it up. And everybody who looked at the serpent was saved. And then Jesus says in John 3, the Son of Man likewise must be lifted high and everyone who looks will be saved, right? So Jesus compares himself to the serpent. He says, see that serpent in Numbers 21? That is like me. I am to become like the serpent and lifted up. Obvious allusion to the cross. But understand this. Understand what he's saying. The serpent principle is this, is that Jesus was comparing himself to the serpent. Who else is compared to the serpent in the Bible? Satan. In fact, in Old Testament, New Testament, anywhere you find serpent, you find an allusion to sin and evil and darkness. So it's very odd that Jesus would compare himself to the serpent. But what he was saying is very profound, and it's igniting to our faith. 
He was saying that he was going to become sin on the cross. He would take our snake bittenness, our poison, because when we, in original sin, when we sinned, and then when we sin afterwards as a symptom, what happens is is we're snake bitten, we're poisoned, and Jesus is saying, I'm going to take your poison, I'm going to take your sin, I'm going to die in your place, and I'm going to be separated from the Father, forsaken on your behalf on the cross. That's the serpent principle. That idea of substitution, that idea of a penalty-paying Savior is what keeps us humble and confident at the same time. We're confident in the presence of God because Jesus paid the price. We're humble with each other because we know that we never could have paid that price. That keeps us ignited, that keeps us sharp, that keeps us not overly inoculated to the gospel or immune to the power of the gospel. The third principle is the treasure principle. Charles Spurgeon demonstrates and spoke often about, he spoke often about the fact that cold believism doesn't make somebody a believer. The type of faith that saves is the faith that appreciates and treasures Jesus as Savior and as Lord. True Christianity is when our hearts can acquiesce and ascend to the beauty of Christ and believe in him in a positive, heartwarming way. He always talked about this, and he talked about how we always needed the Spirit to be the type of believers that we needed to be on a daily basis. He always talked about that text from John 6, verse 63, the flesh profits nothing, but the Spirit brings life. Spurgeon said, don't try to pray in the flesh, pray in the spirit. Don't try to go to church in the flesh, go in the spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit to empower you so you can treasure Christ because that is what a believer is. The final principle, and this will help us to step back and to look up. And it will help us take steps away from lukewarmness is the mission principle. As soon as he became a believer, his deal was other people need to become believers. If Jesus died for sinners, then sinners are the point. And that's why, although he could have lived off his gift, he had a church, huge, massive church, 5,000. He could have lived off of that forever. But what he did, he's, he didn't settle. He planted churches in London and all over England. He had a, a pastor's college. He wrote books for pastors to equip them to plant churches and start churches that would help other people become believers. He was so emphatic, and that's why he used humor. That's why he talked in, he used slang. He used the local slang of the people so that they could identify with him so that they could understand the message. And in bars in London, they would say, we're going to Chuck's this week for church. We're going to cross the bridge and we're going to Chuck's church because we're going to go here because he gets us. He understands us and he wants us to know God and we want to know God. And it created a revival in London. He was unique in that way. He was all about mission. The purpose of the Christian community is mission. The mission of the church is not community. The community of the church exists for mission. And when we keep that in line as a church and as believers, it'll help us stay on our toes. In fact, it keeps things intense. It keeps things moving forward. But when we get off mission and we become about our pet projects and our little church and all this stuff, we get on our heels. And what begins to happen is Satan attacks that and divides and destroys. But when you stay on mission and you're moving forward, you're staying ignited. These things from his story. 
Help us step back and believe again. They help us to keep Jesus not normal. Because even though my nature's been changed and I'm a new creation in Christ and the old has passed away and the new has come sometimes as a preacher and as a pastor, it can, it can start becoming normal. I can start having garage faith. I can start having nominal faith. You know, I've been pre- I feel like I've been preaching my whole life, but if you don't count the first 10 years from the time I was 17 to 27, those were horrible sermons. You think I'm bad now. I was horrible. I couldn't even talk. I called the invalid in John 5 the invalid. <laughs> Embarrassing stuff. I was dating Sherry. She almost didn't marry me after hearing me preach. I don't know. This guy's horrible. But I've been proclaiming the name of Christ over and over. And sometimes my heart, it gets just becomes a routine, and it's hard to step back. But when I remember, it's the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, help me. I've never gone to the Holy Spirit and said, Holy Spirit, help me to love Christ today. I've never, I've never done that, and, and, and he not fill me up. I, I've, never, I've never prayed and asked God, help me to treasure you. And he not answered that prayer, but I, but I ask, see. That's what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Ask, seek, knock. Those who ask, they'll get answers. Those who knock, the door will be open. Those who seek, they're going to find. If you seek me and find me, you will find me, Jeremiah chapter 29. But as believers, we have to continue to seek after him and purpose afresh every single day because sin is an emergency. Every single morning, I put my feet on that central Illinois floor. I am facing the emergency of sin and spiritual warfare, and i got to ask God to help me today. Give me today salvation. Don't make my salvation a yesterday salvation. Give me today salvation. And if everything fell apart, God, help me. If everything falls apart, God, help me to treasure you and love you today. Sherry and I, we've been talking about this all week because everything is breaking down in our house at the same time. Has that ever happened to you? And it's like, God, could you spread out the problems a little bit? Like maybe this week we can do the leak and then next month we can do the car breakdown deal. You know what I mean? But all in one week, Lord, all today. But if everything falls apart on me today, I mean, if my house falls into the ground because it's forgotten that central Illinois does have rain, if, if my basement floods, my cars break down, uh, you know, the, there's no more money in the bank, everything falls apart. If I lose my health, if I become a modern-day Job, could I still say Jesus is enough? That kind of faith is available. That kind of life is available where Jesus is the treasure, and you, you, you could sell everything, but if you had that one treasure, you would have the very kingdom of God in the name of Christ. That is the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for life-saving faith. 
and help me. A poor sinner saved by grace, help me. As one beggar among a whole humanity of beggars, feed me. As a man with not nearly enough wealth, and though all the wealth of this world could not match the riches that I was made for, provide me your treasure. Show me you as the gift, you as the end, you as the goal. Jesus, I look to you. I am snake bitten. I, I have poison and death in me and all around me. I look to you, Jesus. Help me to believe and to live. Give us all, God, today salvation and give us joy. May your joy be our strength. May, may your sovereignty be our confidence. May your beauty be our pleasure. If you don't know Jesus and, and, and you're wondering if he's work, working in your life, if you can look to him, spiritually look to Jesus. If you're like Spurgeon, I was wanting to do 50 things. I came to church, there was 50 things I wanted to do, and then that one thing became everything. Look to Jesus. That means coming to him and saying that you've been poisoned, you've been snake bitten by sin, you, you have been deformed by darkness and coming to him and looking to him and saying, heal me, take my sin, take it away from me and give me your life. And if you can do that, if you believe that Jesus took your poison on the cross, he took your place, if you can call on his name, you will be saved. Just like that uneducated preacher said, you will be miserable in this life and in the life to come if you don't look. We, got, we had baptisms last week. You all saw that. That is the vision, that people would believe in Jesus and become baptized. The water doesn't change anything. It's by faith alone that we're saved. But, but you could be baptized in our next baptism service. So look to Jesus and let us know and tell us that you want to get baptized. And for you believers... You've been in church your whole life, maybe. You've heard far better sermons than you've heard today. You've heard better preachers, and yet God might be using me in your life to remind you of repenting of nominal lukewarm faith. Ask him to give you passion again. Ask him to give you the newness of salvation again. God, do these things and bring about revival in our church and in our time. In Jesus' name, amen.